Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hi, folks. So today on the Take On Board podcast, you will be hearing one of the breakfast events that we have. It's a bit of a longer episode than usual because not only do you get to hear from the fabulous Rosalind Noonan, you will also get to hear the question and answer session from that, including some of the Q&A that happened after the event. So even if you came along, come and listen to some of those questions that we didn't get to do in the event. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Welcome to what I think is actually going to be the final Take On Board breakfast for this year because, oh my gosh, it's November and where has the year gone? Thanks for being here and I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we variously meet. For me, that is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I know others are on various different lands. And I always think, I know some of you might have heard me saying this before, but I think when we're talking governance, uh, which is really the long-term stewardship of organisations, then reflecting on the incredible long-term stewardship of the lands by our First Nations people is an incredible lesson in governance. And we can no doubt all take some learning from that. So now, folks, let's hear from Rosalyn because that's what we're all here for. Let me tell you about Rosalyn. She's fabulous. Roslyn has held senior management and governance positions in small and large trade unions, in local government, in non-government organisations and in independent government institutions. In these roles, she's observed with some concern an increasingly emphatic insistence on a rigorous separation of governance and management. So whilst recognising the challenges and complexities, she advocates for a less simplistic, more engaged approach, an actively complementary relationship. That is the last you will hear from me for the next 20 minutes. Rosalind, over to you. Bye, Helga, Kate, me wahini toa, tina koto katoa, ina mana, ina reo, ina hauefa, tina koto, na mihi, tino mahana, kia koto, tina koto, tina koto, tina koto katoa. I've greeted you in Māori, the first language of Aotearoa New Zealand, Um, and I've greeted Helga as an elder, as it were, Kate, who introduced me to Helga, but also all of you as wahine toa, strong women. And actually, it is a real pleasure to be with such a group 
it's so encouraging and inspiring to hear what people are doing, where they're heading, and to see you in all different sectors of our societies. Because I'm very much, you know, a product of the second wave of the women's movement, and I know how much I owe to other women, as well as to the generations that went before and, and campaigned and organized and fought for women to be able to fully participate and be who they want to be. So it's lovely to be with such a group today. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope this is mainly going to be like an introduction to a conversation, but my experiences in governance and management, with a couple of exceptions, have been predominantly in the community sector, trade unions and government services. And the issues I'll touch on briefly this morning are particularly relevant to those sectors. And they're relevant to both managers, but particularly I'm looking at it predominantly from the point of view of those of you who be on boards. I picked out just three areas in the time that we've got that I wanted to just explore and introduce. The first is the relative impact that on outcomes that strategic decision-making by the board and implementation by the management has. And I'll explain what I mean by that, but that's something that I've observed and come to see as a real critical challenge as to what that dividing line is. The second is in relation to the role of the senior executive officer or the executive director or the national secretary or whatever that the term is for the senior management position. And it's about what's that relationship with the board? What's the relationship of the board with other managers? What's the relationship of individual board members with the CEO, with other managers and with staff? And the third area is in relationship to leadership. You know, we talk about governance and management, but leadership, I think, is a critical element and it's different from both governance and management, although, of course, it is reflected or should be reflected in both governance and management. And the particular area that I wanted to explore was in relation to how do board members who are often appointed to boards with particular expertise, how do they provide that leadership to the management, to the staff, without taking over the roles, without imposing or interfering with the appropriate management roles? But at the same time, how does the organization not lose that expertise? So those are the three areas. And in each case, I thought that I'd illustrate them by sort of one thing I'd observed or experienced. So when I was thinking about this, did what I'm sure we, well, I always do about almost everything, but have a quick Google to see what would come up if I punched in governance and management. And of course, it produces a myriad of materials, some of which are really worthwhile from academics, from international and national consultancy companies, from management gurus, and from community and government guidance. So there's no shortage of guidance, of information, of discussion about these issues. What's really interesting is how much consensus there is. And to sum it up, one of them said, put simply, boards are responsible for oversight and planning and management takes on the daily operations. And then they go on to emphasize, virtually all of them, not that I looked up every one, but I looked up quite a lot because I was really interested to see what 
differences there might be, but virtually all of them emphasize the importance of the separation of powers. And in particular, that boards have to be super careful not to interfere in the management of the organization. Now, having said that, I just want to also put in a caveat here. Practically all of that, all of those perspectives, all of that advice, all of that guidance comes from a Western, largely male perspective. I didn't find anything that, in the time that I had, I'm sure if I hunted more, there'll be some feminist perspectives. But actually, if you go to Google, the main headlines are all very much uh, what we would call in New Zealand Pākehā, white male perspectives. And the thing is, interestingly enough, in New Zealand, thank goodness, at last, there's very much a development of the Māori approach to organisational governance and management, which brings into it te ao Māori, the Māori world. And that's a whole fascinating, interesting, enriching perspective. But that's not what I'm going to be dealing with today. So I just wanted to, to note that. Now, don't get me wrong. I wholeheartedly agree that governance and management have separate roles, responsibilities, and accountabilities, and that it's crucial to recognise, but also to understand and respect them. I'm not going to be proposing the revolution. But my concern is that the line between governance and management can be drawn too rigidly and asserted too simplistically. And that's to the detriment of the organisation. And equally importantly, it's often to the detriment of the outcomes that the organisation hopes to achieve. So picking up the first point, the issue of strategic decision-making and implementation. Now, what I have observed through a diverse, you know, a diversity of organizations, so not just in one case, is that no matter how good the strategic planning and decision-making at the governance level, actually what makes the difference in terms of outcomes is how those plans and decisions are implemented. And that seems to me gives rise to a question of to what extent can the board or how most effectively can the board monitor implementation without being accused of being overstepping the line and wanting to interfere in operational matters? I'm going to share an actual experience with you that I think illustrates this very, very sharply. When I was Chief New Zealand Chief Human Rights Commissioner, one of the issues that we pursued with the government was the fact that children who were undocumented, so they were didn't have immigration status in New Zealand, they were overstayers, whatever, however they were here, they were here without legal migrate, immigration status. They were denied access to education, even though New Zealand has ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which provides for compulsory primary education for every child, not dependent on their immigration status. And it was pretty, it's pretty shocking. And in the New Zealand case, um, many of those children were from the Pacific Islands. And denying them education was really entrenching a cycle of poverty and marginalization. So to cut a long story short, because it was a long story, it took quite some time after I was contacted actually by two little Iranian girls whose mother had applied for asylum. And they had been at school during 
the application process, but when she was denied asylum, the school was told that they had to effectively expel them, that they couldn't continue at school, they wouldn't be funded. Anyway, so that was what triggered, you know, a look at this situation. Cut a long story short, we eventually persuaded the government that they needed to change the policy. There was a cabinet paper. The cabinet paper made a very clear-cut decision that children of compulsory school age, regardless of their immigration status, should have access to free primary education. Fantastic. I was so pleased with the Human Rights Commission, with the staff who'd worked with me on it, with so pleased for those two young Iranian girls who could go back to school and for all the others. Well, a year later, I was contacted by a journalist because there was a big drama in South Auckland, which is where many of the Pacific community live, and they were being scammed and being persuaded to pay $500 for what were fraudulent passports. And when the journalist asked them what was the interest, it was because they wanted to get their kids into school. And she came to me and said, but I thought you'd sorted that. So did I. Well, what had happened was the immigration service, so this is the public service, I'm not saying anything I didn't say publicly at the time, they had always opposed this change of policy by the government of the day. They, of course, had the responsibility as the managers to operationalize it. And so what they did was they introduced a process which involved the children had to, well, or their families had to apply for special visas. Those visas only lasted for one term and they cost $250 each. Outrageous, effectively, they had found an operational way to undermine a decision they disagreed with. And it had very, very appalling consequences for the children. Oh, and the other thing they had to do, the families, in order to get the visas for the children to be able to go to school, they had to give up their right to appeal against deportation. Now, this is one of the more shocking examples of the way in which permanent staff in the public sector can undermine legitimate decisions or operationalize them in the way that effectively undermines them. But there's many of them, and it happens all around the world. So, and it also happens in organizations where you have people who are perhaps elected to the board or appointed board members. They're not necessarily full-time, but mostly they're not full-time. Sometimes they are. And you have a permanent staff who, many of whom are great. I'm, don't, I'm not criticizing all public servants or, or professional staff but who often think they know what's the, the answer and are often very grumpy if a decision is made that goes against their advice. That's where I think it's absolutely critical, not just to take, get the right decision made, but then to follow up on how it's being implemented and to get reports on how it's being implemented and to be willing to question the means of implementation. The second one is in relation to the role of the chief executive officer. And one of the things that has troubled me more generally is we've seen during my lifetime, particularly in the private sector, but it has applied in the public sector as well, and to lesser extent in the community sector, quite a lesser extent. But what we've seen is the growth of enormous power in the role of the chief executive officer. And that links back to the view that the board is here, 
they appoint the chief executive officer and the chief executive officer has all of the delegated powers to appoint staff, to run the day-to-day operations, to report to the board, certainly to be accountable to the board, but is the key pivot. And what we've seen around the world is the growth of outrageous salaries for people in these roles, these incredibly powerful roles, where effectively, in a sense, I mean, some of some of the things I've read recently suggest that, in fact, that power that they have is a factor in generating this um, collective view about how much they have to pay in order they have to be paid in order for the organisation to get a decent CEO, and it does permeate down into other into community not to the same extent, but community organisations have to be able to attract and reasonably reward people. And I think that that kind of um, deification of the role of the chief executive officer has been part of exacerbating the inequalities in our society as well. First of all, don't get me wrong, I think the role of the CEO is critical. And I think particularly the relationship between the chair and the CEO is vital. A really honest, open, trusting, frank relationship on an ongoing basis, not just like a call once a month, but you know, a more regular relationship than that is vital. But I also think that there are areas which you know, shouldn't be fully delegated. So, and I recognize that this depends on the size of the organization, but a medium size to larger organization, I think the board should retain a role in the appointment of other senior executives, the other senior managers. I don't think the appointment of all managers and staff should be delegated to the chief executive alone. And I think that makes quite a big difference. I mean, apart from anything else, I think that helps to encourage the development of a senior management team, but one that is not just a replica of the people that the chief executive office is most like the chief executive officer or that the chief executive officer might be most comfortable with. Obviously, the chief executive officer should be involved, and I'm not saying that the board should be forcing an appointment of someone that the chief executive officer would find completely unacceptable. But I think it's part of getting beyond groupthink in the senior management team and really having an encouraging diversity, some diversity in that team. Yeah, and in looking at the time, so I'm just going to go on to the last one. And that is the issue of how board members can provide leadership without interfering in the actual management. And when I look at the government institutions that I've been appointed to and using the Human Rights Commission, because we've got a federal and state commissions in Australia as an example, the trade union movement where you have elected members who form the board and often the chair or the president is a full-time appointment and community organisations where, and I think, for example, I was on the board of Amnesty International Aotearoa New Zealand. And there, the invitation to stand was made because of what was seen as my human rights expertise. So then the question is, how do you make that expertise available in ways which is supportive of the management and not undermining of the management? And I have seen examples where, in fact, board members found it very difficult not to actually manage a project when they'd been asked to provide an input to that project on the basis of their expertise. 
and that causes tensions and, and rifts and is problematic. And yet, it's also problematic if you have people on boards with expertise, with particular experiences that aren't reflected necessarily in the professional staff of the organisation and which can't be made available to the organisation for fear of overstepping the mark. So I like to think that when we're looking at governance and, and management, we also look at the issue of leadership. I mean, equally, of course, it goes two ways because the chief executive officer and the senior managers have got leadership to offer to the board. And it's important that they can do that, although not that they should be endlessly having the ones who have to educate board members about how to read financial statements or other technical documents or, and so on. But I think we need to give more thought in the governance management mix to the role of leadership, to the role of sharing expertise and experience and drawing on that expertise and experience. And so I think you can see from that that I, I think there are some generic skills and experiences that are important for those who are looking for board appointments and who are on boards and building those capacities. But I also think, as I do with management, that there is real value in substantive knowledge of the work of the organisation concerned. In my experience, I haven't really been excited by appointments of someone with generic skills to a specialist organisation in the expectation that they're, you know, they don't need knowledge of that, those particular specialities. So for the moment, I think women have got a role to bring some fresh thinking to the way in which governance and management interact. I'm not one of those people who think, you know, women are perfect, far, far from it. I think we're good, bad and indifferent like men. But I do think that we tend to put more emphasis on the quality of relationships. And at the end of the day, within an organisation, relationships are really key to effectiveness. You know, it's a good time to be thinking about are there different ways of doing things? Are there different ways of looking th at things? But most importantly, how can we ensure that the organisations for which we're governors or managers actually do deliver the outcomes that they were set up to deliver? So kia ora koutou, nā mihi nui ki a koutou. Thank you. Oh, Roslyn. Oh, my goodness. So you can all see, can't you, why I got Rosalind to speak today. Amazing. And women might not be quite perfect, but we're pretty perfect, I reckon. Okay, folks, so having heard from Rosalind, we're now going to move to the Q&A section of the event, which will involve people asking some of their own questions and also some of the questions we didn't get to that we recorded after the event. Welcome back, everybody. So, folks, we've got about 20 minutes. I'm going to go through the questions in order. I'm going to ask the person who, if I know who it is on here, if you're called on, if you can say your name, your boards you're on, if any, and then ask your questions. So I'll ask people to do their own. So the first one, it's down as anonymous. Does somebody want to out themselves? Uh, Ingrid. Oh, Ingrid Svensson. 
Ingrid, I know you quite well being my sister, but if you could introduce yourself to the room and any boards you're on and if you could ask your question. Hi, I'm um, Ingrid Stenson. I, I'm currently uh, seeking board roles um, and I'm um, a co-founder of East Timor Hearts Fund, which is an international medical organisation. I finished as inaugural board chair a year or so ago, so currently seeking board roles. But I was super interested in what Rosalind had to say and loved her intro. Thank you, Rosalind. I'm going to try and appropriate that. So, yeah, I thought you might have some perspectives, Rosalind, about Maori culture, which obviously are you know, no more than me, but also how Indigenous culture can contribute to good governance or different, you know, better governance practices was my question. Well, just very briefly, I think in, in the break, Helga and I were talking about exploring this in more depth. And so, and I'm obviously not... The person to explore this with are Māori, Māori themselves, Māori governors, managers, Māori who are um, heading some extraordinary organisations now in Aotearoa, New Zealand, building on the um, treaty settlements that they've had. I mean, obviously, there's been ups and downs for some of them, but some of, a lot of them have done incredibly well. So I think it would be fantastic to have the people who are actually doing it share that experience but I would just pick out a couple of things and I think to me one of the most important things which is of value to all of us is that they take a long-term perspective so if you talk to Māori about their organizational planning they're looking 25 years in the future at a minimum and they're doing this because their prime responsibility regardless of any other accountabilities is uh, to their future generations and to ensuring survival and flourishing of their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. And they really do take that perspective. The other thing I think that's really important, and they do draw on all of the Western skills as well, but they really respect elders and those who have mataronga Māori, so that's Māori knowledge and learning and that they have got something to contribute to bring to the mix. And these are often people who, I'll just give one example, then I'll stop because I don't want to take up all the time, but I know elders, you know, women who've been cleaners who are, because that's that's what the, where the world sort of put them, and yet they have so much knowledge and wisdom of their communities. And when you give them the opportunity, they enrich any organisation that they're involved with and they can provide extraordinary leadership but I think the thing to do is is to, to look at that in more depth because again I, I'm totally respectful of what little I do know about what Australian First Nations people have to offer as well and the extraordinary skills and and their ability to have settled and lived on your lands their lands for 60,000 years Thanks, Rosalind. We were talking about that in the break and I'm going to follow up again with there's the, there's, I think it's called the Centre for Indigenous Governance or something along those lines in Australia that I will follow up with as well and be back in touch with Rosalind about some people in New Zealand to talk to because I think there is some incredible things we can learn. All right, next up on our questions, Vicky, I can't see you on the screen, but I'm sure you're there somewhere. Vicky, if you could introduce yourself and ask your question, that would be fantastic. My, my partner is also in a meeting, so it may. I'm just going to repeat the question as it's written because there was a wee bit of background noise there, Vicky. So 
uh, what are the other governance models outside the Western male hegemony? Have, oh, sorry, what other models have you experienced or seen and what, what's the unique thing about them? I don't know that I've, apart from observing from the outside the Māori models now, and I'm just looking across the organisations I've been involved with across Asia Pacific in particular, I really haven't seen alternative models. The predominance of the Western model has, and, and you know, and, and has some, some positive elements, don't get me wrong, but it has pretty much permeated organisations of any size in most countries and because it's permeated the legal frame, the impact of colonisation across Asia, whether British or French or Dutch, permeated the legal, those legal systems. They're only beginning to be modified now. Mm. I'd love to be, be aware of any, but, but the things, the only ones that I'm aware of that have really trying to do things differently have been smaller women's groups, community groups and organisations. It's a great question again, though, and I'm going to follow up as well with some organisations around kind of feminist governance, I guess, although it's interesting, isn't it, that even those organisations, the feminist organisations that I've been involved in, I think probably do still have the same Western model of governance. Although I think the YWCA, possibly globally, but in Australia, has done some work around feminist governance. So I might start with them and see see where the trail takes me and see if we can have a conversation about that as well. But if anybody here has any connections, please let me know. I think it would be a really fabulous topic to explore a little bit more. And can I just uh, actually just drop in because Amnesty International at its last year's global meeting which was virtual but it adopted a policy on developing feminist leadership throughout the organization and so it might be interesting to draw on too. Excellent all right I'll pop them on the list as well. All right the next one is down as an anonymous one but if somebody is in the room that oh Lynn excellent. Thank you so much, Helia. Our question, Rosalind, was really a kind of process question around if you have advice about how board members can question decisions made about appointments to management roles, what should our involvement be? You know, where, where does our involvement start and end? I think the, the foundation is what are the delegations from the board? You know, what are the formal delegations or are they, or is it already, if it's, the public sector, there may already be provisions in the law about the extent of the, the board's responsibilities. I mean, I think, for example, I'm just thinking about the New Zealand public universities, and I'm pretty sure the law provides that the very complex governance arrangements for universities, effectively the sort of peak governing body, they only get to appoint the, you know, the vice chancellor. So, and everything else is done by the vice chancellor and he delegates of other authorities. If it's not already prescribed by law or regulation, what's the delegations from the board to the chief executive? As I said, I think the delegations should obviously provide for the chief executive to have power to make appointments. But in the case of senior executives, in conjunction with the board or the board should have one of the successful examples I've observed and been part of was a board member would be but only one person on an interview panel and then the chief executive would make recommendations so it's still the chief executive's final decision but makes the recommendation to the board and the board endorses those senior executive appointments 
And I've seen that work quite well because it gives the board opportunity to discuss with the chief executive beforehand, what are you looking for now? What do we need to be inclusive, you know, to be diverse, to be effective, and to have the professional skills and experiences required? And I think that that, that sort of a delegation that's specifying a measure of board involvement in those appointments, you know, provides it opens up those conversations when they might not otherwise happen. Thanks, and it's certainly um, the question for me was certainly about my role on the committee of the community house, not in terms yeah. of yeah, the public service is very well covered <laughs> in terms of those appointments. Thank you, Christy. You're up next. If you can introduce yourself and ask your question, that would be fantastic. Uh, thanks, Helia. I'm Christy Robson. I'm on a couple of health regulation boards and a hospital board. And my question is, do you have any tips around navigating the space around when boards make a strategic decision that management don't really engage in the spirit of that decision? And when the board actually then pushes back on that, that the pushback is, well, that's operational, so you don't have a role in that. So I'd just like to hear your views on that. It is one of the things that's you know, I've been concerned about for a long time because I've seen, I mean, I've experienced it, I've seen it happening, you know, in areas that I am have an interest or a connection to. I think it's one of those situations where probably what's critical is the relationship between the chief executive officer and, and the chair and the chief executive officer and the board as a whole and being able to have that, a discussion with them. When I was National Secretary of NCDI Teriuroa, which was the largest education sector union in New Zealand and the third largest union, I was in the chief executive role there. And one of the things I used to say to the staff was mostly the executive board and the president will accept the advice that you give them if it's rigorous, well-evidenced, of a high quality. But sometimes they won't. Occasionally they won't. And at the end of the day, it's their organisation and, you know, you have to accept it and accept it in good spirits, not try to undermine it. Health organisations are particularly complex, as you know. I mean, there's, you know, all of the, you know, the professional expertise as well as major administrative issues. And I think that when you have a situation like that, it suggests that some of the preparatory work in arriving at the original decision perhaps could have been better. You know, I think it's an issue of how do you take people along with you? Have those affected by the decision been involved in the process of arriving at that decision? If it were me, and I, you know, I was still convinced that the original strategic decision was the right one and it was appropriate for the board, I would be very firm and I would engage with the chief executive about what needs to be done to turn around the, the attitude of the of the staff of the key staff. But I'd also look at how do we arrive at those decisions in ways that bring people along. It doesn't mean everyone's going to agree. And there does have to be a point at which they recognize that the board has the final say, if it indeed it is a strategic matter and rather than a operational matter. But I also come back to having that discussion about sometimes the board has a legitimate interest in the operational matter. So it's how those can be discussed and, and acknowledged as well. Oh, 
I'm going to try and cram in one more quick one because I think we touched on it earlier. Karen Percy, because I think we've got a few Karens here. Karen, uh, I think we did touch on this earlier, but I'll get you to introduce yourself and ask your one. Karen, over to you. Thank you, Karen Percy. I'm a journalist and I'm on a number of boards. One is I'm the president of the media section of the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance. So I cover sort of 5,000 media workers in Australia, uh, voluntary position. I'm also on something called the Walkleys Foundation, which is a board looking at excellence in journalism. And I'm also on the advisory board of the Australian Intercultural Society. My question is about, I guess, the detail of a delegation of authority document. Um, I think my main question about the pros and cons has probably been covered to some degree. But are there some must-haves in there? One of the situations I found in a different board I was at was that the the delegations were kind of read to the letter of the law, if you like, and that caused some issues because there can be changes in, um, you know, what was strategic last week becomes operational next week and vice versa. And we've had a situation where uh, the Walkleys, and I'm not saying anything out of school, this is on the public record, that there have been ordinarily complaints about awards would be something handled by the staff. But as soon as there's a defamation layer on it, it has to come to the board because it's on that huge risk stuff. So I just wonder, are there some must-haves that must be there on your, your DOA? And also, how do you give yourself that wiggle room to be able to say, actually, this is now a board issue? I mean, I obviously you know, delegations need to be regularly reviewed. I mean, whatever the, there'll be, you know, different patterns, depend, again, depending on this, you know, the nature of the organisation. But certainly I would say, you know, delegations should be annually reviewed in proper consultation with the chief executive and if there's a senior management team, you know, involving all of them. Then I think, honestly, a lot of this comes down to relationships. This is why I'm sort of against rigidity. I'm not in favour of... Occasionally I've been accused of being sort of an anarchist, but I'm not really an anarchist, but I'm opposed to rigidity. You know, and the other thing is I feel very strongly about, you know, issues of risk should always come to the board. And, I, you know, and in that I would put potentially, you know, contentious issues, which might appropriately actually be handled operationally, but which should still come to the board for, at the very least for information. I mean, it's what's described in some places as like a no surprises policy. I think board members, as much as ministers of the Crown are entitled to a no surprises policy from, from the organisation that they've, they've got a responsibility for and that they're going to be held accountable for. But, I mean, one of the things that just thinking about all of those, and because I know I don't have any easy answers, but, I mean, the other thing is, have you had experience, which I've found very positive, although hard, of, you know, having like a retreat with governors and senior managers, and in a sense to work through what some people might call a code of conduct or a charter, you know, which sets out you know, the relative roles and responsibilities and what to do in certain, in some situations. I mean, and I think in a sense, the process is almost more important than the final, and that's that, in that situation, the final outcome, you know, then since the charter or the code is less important than the fact that actually these issues have been raised, people have been heard about where they are finding the difficulties and where the line is, you know, and what impact it's having on their ability to deliver on the work or to feel comfortable that the board's meeting its responsibilities. Every couple of years, I would say that's absolutely worth providing for if you can. 
depending on the size of the organization, but it probably needs to be two days. So there is time to for the issues really to be on the agenda and work through and a real attempt made to come to agreement that can be drafted and you know shared with people and people can comment on it. There's one here. How can internal stakeholders like managers and staff be involved in strategic planning to encourage buy-in and lessen potential obstruction? What are your thoughts there? Well, my thoughts are that they should definitely be involved and there should be a whole process. In a sense, a year a year out from the when the next strategic plan's due, you should be beginning the process of reviewing what's been achieved. Staff should be invited to have that discussion within their within their teams and to and to contribute in writing what they think's worked, hasn't worked. And then they should be involved in the next stages of the planning. And again, I certainly think for managers, senior staff and managers, ideally they should be part of a retreat with the governors as you're building up to the final drafting of the strategic plan. But, but there's a variety of ways of doing it. I mean, if it's a small organization, you can involve everybody and they can be part of the discussions about why in the end you opt for some priorities and not others, because that's you can never do everything. And that's always really important. And then there's the issues about also how you consult or involve external stakeholders, particularly community organisations. All right. The final question that we didn't get a chance to ask in the session, this person says, such good comments about the contribution that women make. Regarding school boards, do you think that parent board members are problematic given they're not educators? What are your views there? Well, of course, having been involved in the New Zealand education sector at the time that school boards were elected to every school and they became autonomous, what I can say is that parents can add a huge amount of value and support to the schools. And that was actually what we found the campaign for pay equity for for primary teachers. Actually, what shocked the government of the day was they thought the boards would keep the teachers under control, when in fact, the boards who could see what work was involved, what demands there were on the teachers, actually came out wholeheartedly and supported them. But it's also true, and in some communities, you don't have people, it's not so much that they're not educators, but you maybe don't have people with some of the skills you really do need on the board. If the board is going to be able to support the principal, you know, which it should do because there's the CEO and support the staff. And I think that requires a real commitment to, you know, building their their capacity. And again, my observation has been when there's really constructive support offered to boards and to board members, they'll grab it. And often those board members who who have perhaps very low levels of formal education are really keen to have the opportunity to to learn, in a a sense, to become almost credentialed for the role. And in saying that, I'm not underestimating how hard it can be for principals or senior staff in a school where you've got board members who really haven't ever had the experience of being on a board or and aren't adequately supported to develop those skills. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? It is around supporting those skills. I I had a conversation just recently with somebody about a sporting organisation and they were saying, you know, it's really hard to find a person who plays 
you know, this sport and who, you know, is a lawyer or an accountant or whatever. And I'm like, you don't need to find somebody who has played this sport at that elite level who has those qualifications. You just need to find somebody who's played that sport who, you know, wants to engage you know, all you really need to do is be able to think and ask good questions. That's really the basis of a good board member and the qualifications. I know plenty of lawyers and accountants who can't think through things well and ask good questions. So the qualification doesn't necessarily attach to the skill that is required. So I think thinking broadly around that is um, a really helpful thing for boards and ensuring that you've got that diverse experience in the boardroom so that it can really help and be a rich conversation. Exactly, exactly. And I think, um, again, I think we have to be really careful that we, those of us on the other side, do actually make sure we do recognise the inherent skills and the value that they can bring. Rosalind, thank you so much. That was just fabulous and it's prompted so many other topics that we might get to talk about as well like indigenous governance like feminist governance some of those other things so thank you Kate I know you're not here now thank you Kate for the introduction thank you Rosalind for being open to a virtual cuppa and then open to doing this conversation as well I mean you could see from some of the feedback that the people in the community got a huge amount out of it and as I think I'd said, we will now share this as a podcast. So even some of those that didn't get to come around will also get to share in it. So, Well, listen, I think you're fantastic. So all the best. Thank you. Be in touch again. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.